Oh, thank you. Thank you. What a blessing, uh, Shore Church. So good to be here with you. Um, my name is Josh. If I don't know you, I had the pleasure of um, being on staff at the mother church that sent the shore out, and I had a pleasure of being on staff here for a few years. I uh, was hoping to see more of you this morning. It is, um, it, yeah, this is going to be our last, I think, the last time I preach in Vancouver before we move to Kelowna to plant a new church. We're doing that in uh, just a few weeks from now, and it's sad parting, but also really excited because I believe God's got something big planned for the Okanagan, and I am so possessed by that vision that I can't do anything else. And um, I, all, all that to say, it's a great honor to be here with you. I wish I could have seen more of you in, in person. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more at the back end about that upcoming church plan. Would love it if you would um, join our prayer team. I want to stay in contact with you. And we'll be back, of course, and hopefully when I come back, some of this will have uh, been mitigated. There'd be some ways to gather in person soon. Um, I'm definitely hungry for that and I imagine you are as well. Um, this morning we're going to be continuing on through 2 Corinthians, a study you guys have been going through. Tuned in, it's been really good. Um, this is a letter that Paul has written to a, a church that he helped plant in Corinth. It's called 2 Corinthians, but it's actually... Um, looks like it's the fourth letter he's written. There was a first letter and uh, then uh, a second letter, which is called 1 Corinthians. And then uh, the vast majority of commentators believe there was a third letter. And then what we're calling 2 Corinthians is in fact the fourth letter to the Corinthians. We could probably make this easier and call it 2nd and 4th Corinthians. Um, it's confusing. Anyway, we're in the second letter of Corinthians. And so this is a letter he wrote to the Corinthian church because they had some questions about probably some of his past visits to Corinth, um, probably because of some of the stuff he'd been writing in 2nd and 3rd Corinthians, um, th those middle two letters that he'd sent. And um, so really the first five and a half chapters that we've been reading here is, is Paul responding to that. It's important we remember as we read this, this is a letter. It's a letter that was written to a people in Corinth. It just kind of gives it some grounding and basis for what we're reading. And these first five and a half chapters that you guys have transversed as a body now, um, they're Paul's defense of himself, responding to some of their questions. And now essentially what Paul is going to do in our text this morning, beginning in um, verse 11 on, is he's going to say, okay, let me just stop for a second. Let me open up the hood and show you what makes me tick. Let me show you why I do everything that I do. He's going to open up his hood and what we're going to see is a four-cylinder engine underneath. Four cylinders that the gospel fuels, that the gospel is combusting within and compelling him to do everything that he does. So that's how we're going to spend our time. If you're a note taker, you're going to need a pencil, you're going to need a notepad. I'm not going to give you the four points on the, on, on the front, so you've got to be ready. And everyone else, you're going to need your Bible. So grab that. That can be on a device. Even better, grab a paper version. While you do that, let me open us in a word of prayer. Well, God, I thank you that you are overall... Your overall, we praise you, God, three in one, just as we've been singing in worship. Your overall, you, you are unbelievably large. And yet, 
you condescend to interact with mankind. Yet you speak to us. You're overall in that you're, you're also just imminently close and you've self-revealed of yourself through the word. We, so we praise you for that. Praise this morning, pray this morning that these words that Paul penned to a church in Corinth that you preserved for the last 2,000 years for the building up and edification and correction and training of your people would be fanned into flame in our hearts, that we would be transformed through them, that the reason you have sustained these words for so long would be unpacked in us, that we'd come to be engulfed in the same flame that Paul was. The Holy Spirit, you've called me to do something this morning that I'm completely incapable of apart from your empowerment. So I pray, would you, over this stack of kindling, these 11 pages of notes that I've scribbled together, breathe. They're kindling, they're nothing without you, so come and breathe, and this morning, build us up, your church. We're hungry, we're desperate. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, we are going to begin in. If you've got them, we're going to go. He starts by saying, therefore, and we're going to stop. Because whenever we see a therefore, we always stop and say, what is it therefore? Um, it's, it's got a purpose. It's kind of a way of saying, in light of what has just been said. And so we need to say, hey, what was just said? Uh, chapter 5, really all of it, um, it's, it's been saying that even if our outward body is wasting away, we have a, a heavenly home awaiting us. That if we lose everything we have now, um, it's fine because we would gain more of Christ. But in the meantime, until we leave and while we're still here, while we're in our earthly bodies, Paul said, you read this last week, that whether we're at home in heaven or away here, We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is the the stage that he's just set. And then he opens by saying, therefore, therefore. He says, one day, Every single person on the planet is going to stand before the maker, the God of the universe, and give an account for their life. To those who have not called out to Christ, uh, there's a judgment. There's a waiting judgment for their sin. To those who have called out for Christ, um, Christ has been judged on their behalf. There's a waiting judgment, but it's one that Christ took. So what Christians are going to face is um, a reward. They're going to go stand in in, in judgment and they will receive a reward for their obedience, a reward for their their good works. And now I'm not preaching prosperity gospel. You can go find other churches in town that do that. Our obedience does not per se result in rewards right now, but rewards then. Jesus didn't promise us a smooth flight in first class. He promised us a safe landing And this promise of future reward should motivate us as Christians. And it motivated Paul. 1 Corinthians 15.10, the the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, Paul says, um, comparing himself to some of the super apostles that had been rolling through town, he said, "Um, I worked harder than any of them. He boasts about how hard he worked. And the reason why is because of the reward that's ahead. Unbelievers... It's saying are going to be judged for their evil works. Believers will be judged. 
and rewarded for, for, for what they did. And this isn't works-based righteousness. It's, it's works-resulting righteousness. It's righteousness that compels us, fuels us to go and do good deeds. We're going to be judged because God gave us the Holy Spirit to empower good deeds. And if we aren't engaging in, in them, one day we're going to have to stand in front of Christ, in front of God, and say, and answer the question, why didn't you open that gift that I died to give you? So, all of that said, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, he says, we persuade others. So, here we go. Paul opens up the hood, and he's going to show us the first cylinder in, in, in his engine. He's the first cylinder which the fuel of the gospel is igniting him and, and compelling him to go and do all that he's doing. Roam around the world proclaiming the gospel. Face persecutions, uh, stoning, shunning, uh, shipwrecks, sleepless nights, loneliness in order that he could persuade others. The first thing he says that's fueling him, the first cylinder in his engine, is the fear of God. Uh, now, this is something that might not make sense to everyone. So I want to take a second and unpack this. Uh, many of us will struggle with this concept of fear of God. Uh, it appears, um, this word fear, in relation to God 300 times in the Bible. So if you want a little break from your reading plan this week, which can be fun to do, take a day and just take a look at all the references to fear of God. A simple Google search. You can say, fear of God in the Bible. Go through those references. See what is being referred to here. Uh, very interesting. Um, go and do that on your own. I've done that, and I'm going to share kind of some of what you will find if you go and do that on your own this week. Probably the most famous verse that's going to come to mind when you think of fear of God is Psalm 111, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who practice it have understanding. As well, though, Proverbs is full of um, this topic, the fear of God, and it says, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So what is it? Well, if you were to go through all these 300 references, what you would find, um, I mean, that, that would take a while. It's going to be fun if you go and do it, but there's, there's many different things that are intended and meant by this. So I want to share three of them. The first thing that the fear of the Lord is, is a recognition of his righteousness. And I'm just going to take you to um, um, Isaiah 6 and read just a couple verses from there that speak to this idea. So it says, in the days of Ahaz, um, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, resident the king of Samaria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, that Isaiah went up. I'm reading from chapter 7, pardon me. I'm just stopped myself. I'm going to go back. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to, to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When they, when they said this, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. All this to say, 
fear of the Lord is the recognition of his greatness. When Uzziah, um, when, um, pardon me, Isaiah, um, in the years, in the days of King Uzziah, saw God, he trembled. He recognized his greatness. When we behold God, it should overwhelm us. I, uh, two, two and a half years ago now, um, had the pleasure of going to Africa on a mission trip with my family. And a friend of mine, he took us out into uh, uh, a nature park, so on a safari, and we're riding on the top of this Toyota Land Cruiser, um, just on the roof rack, safe. And um, we're driving around, and, and he starts to taunt an elephant. So he'll drive forward and back up. Drive forward and back up, and the elephants take this as a threat. And so I'm sitting on the front of this Toyota Land Cruiser when an elephant runs right at me right in front of me, just trumpeting, tusks, this mammoth beast. And now some of the, the crew that was with us, some of the girls just start crying. People are freaking out uh, because this is a right response when a giant elephant is stampeding you. When we behold God, when we properly recognize him and his greatness, it should cause a response in us as well. It should cause us to recognize what we're dealing with, a healthy fear. And when we properly see that, it should also lead us to repentance. In Job 28, 28, we read, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. If you read Proverbs, you see that um, knowledge unpacks in wisdom and becomes understanding. And what it's saying is you can have wisdom, but understanding the application of it is to turn away from evil. So you can know God is holy, but if you don't obey him, you lack understanding. When we rightly behold God and recognize his greatness, it needs to cause us to cry out, woe is me, like Isaiah, and repent. So the fear of the Lord, it's the recognition of his greatness, and it's a reverence as well towards him, a second point. Um, the idea of fearing God, I know, sounds like a foreign concept to some, because we're, we're taught that perfect love casts out all fear, and we can probably have a hard time reconciling these two ideas of God's love and, and also fearing something that loves us. We live in a very low honor culture as well, and so... Uh, some of how we operate and function as a culture gets read onto this, read onto our understanding of God. Fear and respect seem very counter to love in our culture, but rightly understood, they're complementary. Let me give you an example of this. I was in Thailand with my wife a long time ago, and we paid some people to go in and hang out with some tigers. And we, they would give us some rules ahead of time, like, hey, if you have red on, take it off or you're going to die. Um, hey, you have like some beef jerky in your back pocket, take that away. I don't want you to get eaten. They gave us a whole list of different rules of things you could do. And then you walk in beside these tigers, which by the way are giant, freaky. Like they stand up and they come up to here and I'm a tall guy. Freaky big cats. And you sit down with them and, and you can pet them. But you don't treat this thing like a house cat. 
The rules, you obey them because they keep you alive. It's not an unloving thing, the rules. They're actually very loving things. To, to keep the cat analogy going, um, I'm reading, uh, or just finishing up the Chronicles of Narnia series with my daughters, and in there early on, just a famous quote, you've likely heard it before, they talk about Aslan, the kind of the picture and type of Christ in that story, and they say, he's a, he's a good lion, but he's not a tame one. Proper recognition of Jesus' greatness, of God's greatness, should impact our conduct. It should inform our actions. It should result in a, ref, a, re, a reverence, a respect. I know you might say, well, but he loves us. He would never do anything to harm us. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is good, but he can roar. He's not a lap cat. We should never treat him as such. Hebrews 12, 5 through 10, up on the screen, it says this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, it says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. For it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, they weren't in 2020 Western, uh, Western Canada, because today there's lots of sons who are not disciplined, um, and that's viewed as a loving thing. That's a contrarian idea to the author of this, um, of Hebrews, though. It says, if you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. He is good. He's all-knowing. He disciplines us for good that we might share in his holiness. God is our father. He's our loving father. And although this idea is falling out of vogue today, God disciplines his children because he loves them. And although it's falling out of vogue today, the Bible commands children to revere and obey their fathers. It commands fathers to train their children in the way they should go so in the end they won't depart from it. The reason why is because God our Heavenly Father does and his earthly fathers were to be pictures of the Heavenly Father. A proper recognition, therefore, of who God is should lead to a reverence towards God. It should lead to a recognition of his greatness, but out of that, it should lead, thirdly, to an obedience of his commands. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it says this, Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commands, the whole duty of man. So we're going to get back to the text here, but just this to say that if you are, 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 are not a believer in Jesus, if you would not profess Jesus as your Savior, you need to fear judgment. If you would profess Jesus as your Savior, God has come and stood on the scale of place. He's taken the punishment for your sins. He's gifted you the reward that only Christ has earned. There's no judgment waiting for you for your sins any longer. But we should fear God. 
We should fear displeasing him by ignoring his commands. We should fear one day standing in front of him and having to, to answer him why we didn't do the things he told us to do. We should fear not engaging in the mission that he gave us. We should fear one day standing in front of God, rejoicing that Jesus has taken the judgment reserved for us, and then having to explain why we didn't tell people around us. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. So this is the entire essence of what it means to be a Christian, to persuade others. That's the Christian's MO. If we woke up with breath today, it's because there's still good works and there's still people that God has for us to tell the good news to. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not what's going on in our heart. Paul's showing the Corinthians what's under the hood. He's showing them the heartbeat behind everything he does, what motivates him to keep going, to leave the comforts of one town in order to go to another town and present the gospel again that constrains him to keep telling people, living his life like a maniac on a mission. And then he says, for if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. And saying beside himself here, it's really a first century way of saying cray-cray, if we were to transliterate that into today's culture. It's crazy. We say beside ourselves when someone has been so overwhelmed by something so bad that they can't really comprehend it. Or something so good that you don't just text about it or Facebook about it. You call someone up or you drive to their house and go, guess what just happened? He's beside himself. He's saying, I was so excited. That's why I came to Corinth. That's why I shouted in excitement. If I seemed like a lunatic, it's because the fear of God compelled me to. I wanted everyone to know. And then he shows us the second cylinder of this Middle Eastern motor. First is fear. The second, look at it, the love of Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that all those who live might no longer live to themselves, but for him who died for their sake. That might seem a little complicated with lots of people dying, so let me explain it. Um, Verse 14, it says, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Let me unpack this. Let me make sense of this. If you walk through it, it seems complicated at first. It actually kind of unpacks really easily. Before Jesus, people used the law to try to be righteous. They would keep the law, and then they would know they were doing okay. They'd kept themselves alive. If they transgressed the law, though, they knew that there was things that they had to go and do. There was sometimes legal requirements that they had to keep. Um, and, and God had given them the sacrificial system as well in order to, to, to help them and really come along as a guide until God would come and redeem the people in Jesus. Hopefully that makes sense to you. 
The understanding of this time was that if a Jewish person engaged with the law and the sacrificial system, they were keeping themselves alive. But then what Paul is saying here is that when we discovered that Jesus came to die for all of humanity, we discovered that everyone was dead. So Hebrews 10.4 says, it's impossible for the, the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So there was a consequence for this sin. It really wasn't keeping them alive. In fact, the law wasn't making them come more alive. It was revealing more and more how dead they were. It was revealing their need. It was revealing the fact that Jesus actually had to come down and die in their place. And so Jesus coming and dying, what he says here, is that because one came and died, we discovered that all were dead. Not just Gentiles, the Jews as well. Everyone was dead, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded that one died for all, therefore all have died. So before Christ, everyone had died. This is why Paul in Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses. But all have died, but he died for all. That those who live now, post-Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for all. This is the gospel. He died for all. He died for you and for me. He came and died so that we wouldn't have to die. We were dead. We were, go- we were dead in our sins. He came and died so that we would no longer be dead, but could have new life. God's love took action. God's love took action. God's love took action to save us. Therefore, God's love should compel us to take action as well. The King James, um, it says here, um, for verse 14, it says that um, the love of Christ constraineth me. That's the, ver- the way I grew up knowing this, hearing this. I like that word, constraineth. It's like bowling when the bumpers are in. It's like, I can't go anywhere else, Paul is saying. There's bumpers up. The love of Christ constrains me. I can only go here. But I, I like the ESV as well because there's, there's an idea being communicated with this word control. Um, many places throughout the New Testament, Paul talks about how we were slaves of sin. But he also talks about how when Christ came and redeemed us, we become slaves to righteousness. So just as we were controlled by sin, now we're controlled by righteousness. And this is, this is kind of weird to think about, but freedom has, is slavery too. We're now not enslaved to sin, we're enslaved to freedom. The love of Christ enslaves us, constrains us, controls us. Romans 6.18, it unpacks this. It says, we, we've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So if we're no longer slaves to sin, we're now therefore slaves to righteousness. If we've tasted the love of God, then we can't be helped enslaved to the same goal as Paul. It's just that more would come to see the love of Christ. First cylinder, um, the fear of God. The second cylinder, the love of Christ. The third he's going to show us now is the death of Christ. Verse 15, he died for all. 
so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Saying, if God's come down and, and died in our place, can't help but be enslaved to the goal of sharing this love with others. God's come down and died in our place and rescued us back, ransomed our lives, resurrected us from the dead. Then our lives are his. They're his. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The fear of God, the love of Christ, the death of Christ, and fourthly, the gift of new life. Take a look. It says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We have new life. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, I've already mentioned, uh, we've talked about therefore a little bit, but Paul uses this word an awful lot, like 12 gazillion times in his writing. Um, I think what we read just here in verse 16 is the first, and I think the only time in the New Testament where we actually see from now on, therefore. These, that phrasing, from now on, therefore. Um, Paul uses therefore because he likes to build ideas, kind of like building a block tower. He lays some things out, and then he goes, okay, therefore, on to the next level. Therefore, he's very sequential, very Socratic, likes to build idea on idea, idea. And when he says, from now on, therefore, in verse 16, it's a way of saying, okay, so now that we've established all of this, everything forward's going to look different. Therefore, and now forever after, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We regard no one according to the flesh. Let me unpack that because um, there's lots here, kind of another dense statement of his. He says, prior to Christ, people were regarded according to what they didn't, didn't do, the righteousness with which they lived, whether they kept the law or not. If they sinned, they were regarded by how quickly they responded according to the law, went um, for sacrifice, fulfilling the requirements of the law. And people compared themselves to one another. Really, the Jewish culture is just one big um, comparison. I'm trying to think of uh, a polite PG way. Some of you have kids at home. So... Um, there's a big contest going on. Who's more righteous? Pharisees walking around town with big-time swagger, proud of what they're doing. It's all a competition. Who's more righteous? And we still compare today, just to be fair. We're still very entrenched in this, inside and outside of the church. Uh, clothes and cars, muscles and money, Income, Instagram profiles. We've got different ways that we're competing with one another. And, and we compare and we rank people according to how they rank up to our idea of righteous or unrighteous. A life well lived or a life not well lived. We're impressed by people's righteousness. They're good people. We're unimpressed by people's unrighteousness. How could they live like that? You might not vocalize it, but if you're anything like mine, you think it. Paul says he actually even used to regard Christ this way. The whole religious system, they looked at Christ and went, man, you don't fit into our, our description of what righteous is. 
So we'll kill you. They were, they were judging. They compared. But once he died, they realized, wow, we can't regard him according to his flesh. He was God. So um, once Jesus came back from the dead, everything changed, how they regarded him. And, and Paul's saying that now we need to as well no longer regard people according to their out, outward presentation. He says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Verse 17, the old has passed away, the new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Being made new in Christ, it didn't have an iota of an iota of, to do with anything that the people had done beforehand. It wasn't their outward appearance. It wasn't their actions. We didn't reconcile ourselves to God. It was God through Christ reconciling us to himself. He said in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God came and he indiscriminately gave new life. Completely, indiscriminately, not according to anything that we had done. Paul was caught up in the murder of Stephen, an early Christian. He was persecuting Christians, trying to shut down the church. God showed up and saved him. Now, what Paul is saying is that the four-cylinder coursing under his hood, driving him to do all that he does, is God's indiscriminate giving of new life. It doesn't matter if someone's a Muslim, a Mormon, a murderer. It has no bearing whatsoever on who God saves. It doesn't matter if they have face tattoos, belong to the cult, or chain smoke. It doesn't matter if they live out of their car, deal black tar heroin, or call themselves Yeezus. God comes and saves whoever he wants indiscriminately, not based off of their righteousness, nothing to do with that whatsoever. Jesus is indiscriminate in who he saves, and you and me were living proof of that. We were not pursuing him. I was not pursuing him. I was running from him. And he came and he saved me. He changed my heart. And so the thing Paul is saying that's compelling him to run about telling everyone about Jesus, marching into towns, getting drug out of town, stoned to death, resuscitating, going back into town to preach again, was this, indiscriminate love of God. He wouldn't preach it to people who didn't want to hear it. Rightly understood, no one wants to hear the gospel. If we preach the gospel only to people who want to hear it, no one would come to faith. Because there's no one who wants to hear the gospel apart from Christ. He's a madman. He's a wild man. They're looking at him going, what's possessing you? You're out of your mind. You're beside yourself. You're a lunatic. You're a Jesus freak. You're some weird first century energizer evangelistic bunny. What's going on? Why do you do what you do? It's the fear of God. It's the love of Christ. It's the death of Christ, and it's the indiscriminate gift of life that Jesus came to give. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
He says, this is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. This is why Paul does what he, he does. And if we've been reconciled, we need to go out and be the reconcilers as well. If we're in Christ, we as well have been given this, this ministry of reconciliation. Now, I want to just quickly unpack um, this word reconciliation, then I want to talk about two ways that this plays out. Um, this word reconciliation, if it's new to you, it, it really it refers to um, restoring to a, a right relationship or restoring favor. That's what reconciling, being brought back into right relationship. And, and as I said, there's really two ways that this ministry of reconciliation plays out. The first, um, quite natural, it's where our minds probably go first because it's what Paul's been talking about. It's towards those who do not yet know Christ. Towards those outside of relationship in Christ, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Um, Ephesians 2, it's up on the screen, verse 13 to 16. After talking about how we were dead in our trespasses, it says, But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed as ordinances, um, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So by making peace, reconciling, there's our word, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no more hostility, there's no more judgment for our sin. We've been reconciled. And so just as we have, were once far off, we are to go to those who are far off. Just as we were once hostile and resistant to God, we are to go to those who are resistant and hostile to God, even if they don't want to hear it. Because the fear of God compels us. The love of Christ controlleth us, constraineth us. us. <laughs> the death of God, the death of Christ motivates us and the gift of new life that has been granted to us makes us unable to do anything else. We're to go out like Paul and persuade others. The fear of God, it must constrain us. The love of God must control us. The death of Christ must compel us. And the new life of Christ must combust in our internal engine and cause us to go out and do the same things Paul did. We are ambassadors of Christ, verse 20. We are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God's plan is that these things would blow up in us as well and cause us to go and tell everyone about him. And so I want to I just ask us a question is that who do we know that does not yet know Christ? If we own Christ, we owe Christ. We must go and tell. What group in the city has not yet heard the gospel? What part of this province has not yet heard this gospel? 
What part of the world has not yet heard the gospel? If we own Christ, we owe Christ. That's our mission, to go out and persuade the world, to win them to Christ, to reconcile them to Christ. That's the ministry we've been giving. If you woke up this morning, it's because this is what you're alive for, this ministry of reconciliation. Anything else, careers, watches, clothes, ambitions, vacation plans, investment opportunities, your dreams, the things you want to do, your dream board, your Instagram vision, your homes, cars, relationships, anything else that holds us back from this ministry is a waste. I don't want to stand in front of Christ one day and have to say, hey, I know I didn't engage in your mission, but look what I did. Look at the real estate portfolio that I built. Look at how high up the career pole I got. Look at the size of my muscles. But look how far I'm able to ride my bike. Look at that bank account. None of it matters. One day we're going to be embarrassed by these things. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. But there's a second uh, way that this ministry of reconciliation plays out. Take a look at verse 20 with me. He says, Therefore, we're ambassadors, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I said at the beginning, remember that this is a letter to the Corinthians. He is speaking here to the Corinthians. This is his audience that he's imploring to be reconciled. And so you might be asking, how does someone in Christ need to be reconciled to God? Good question. They're reconciled, aren't they? Their sins are taken care of. They're forgiven. Why, why do they need to be reconciled? Uh, the answer, uh, of course, yes, their sin is taken care of. Um, their past, present, future sins have been taken care of in Christ. There's nothing we did to earn our salvation, so there's nothing we can do to lose it. But when we perform this ministry of reconciliation towards believers in sin, we aren't actually reconciling them to Christ in the sense that um, they were severed and dead in their sins again. We're reconciling them to the life that Jesus died in order to give them. And we 100% fall out of connection with that. Colossians up on the screen, 119 to 23, it says this, for in him, all the fullness of Christ was, of God was pleased to dwell in Christ and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself, God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, Jesus's blood on the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. If, note this word, if indeed you continue in the faith. So we've been reconciled if indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Jesus didn't just come to earth to, to to save us from our sins. He came to give us new life. And he died to save us from vainglorious material pursuits, money, sex, pleasure, all of that. 
And we have an enemy, though, who prowls around and tries to get us back into that, to living our lives for those things, not the life that Christ came to give us. And the ministry of reconciliation isn't something that we, we just live out in relationship to those outside of Christ, but to those within the body as well. When brothers and sisters become entangled in the life of flesh, our job as ministers of reconciliation is to remind them that that thing they're trying to grab hold of and find life in is actually now dead. They're not that anymore. To remind them of the life that Jesus came to give them that they're not grabbing hold of and enjoying. To remind them that they're now alive in Christ. And, and just as Paul implored the Corinthians, we need to implore our brothers and sisters in Christ of this too. Quit running back to material pursuits that we are all prone to. To live for the spiritual life that Christ died to give us. Because it's unloving um, to leave a brother or sister stuck in their sins. Christ didn't. Christ's love came for us. Our love needs to go for them as well. He died for all, verse 15. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul, um, taking a break here with the Corinthians, opening up the hood, showing them what makes him tick, the same engine that should be alive in the heart of every believer, this fear of God, this love of God, the death of Christ, the, the life of um, the new life that he came to give us should be coursing through our veins as well. And the direction it should be driving us, the, the thing that the wheels are turning for is this ministry of reconciliation. So that we would go to the lost and we'd go to our brothers and sisters who are stuck in their sins. And I'm going to conclude by just saying that this is a, the weirdest time in human history to do this. We're being told to stay away from those around us. To socially distance. Uh, the church isn't gathering in person. Your social networks, even your offices are probably not meeting in person. But the ministry of reconciliation goes on. And just as a practical ending to this, I want us all to just think and go, who are these people? You have brothers and sisters in Christ who need to hear from you. They need to know you're there more than just that you're watching the same Sunday sermon as them from some wherever it is. We need to find ways to get in contact. Or this ministry of reconciliation could not happen. And there's those in our community who are hurting, who are dying. The message of our culture is, is that we're just big meat machines, that we're nothing more than material. And it's a lie. And people's spirits are starving and hungry for Christ. And the church has that message. You have that message. You have that new life. We have that so that we could go out and tell others. I don't know how we do that right now. But I know that we need to be about it. And so the challenge is for us to pray, to examine our hearts and ask, how do we go about this ministry of reconciliation in this time? And I think 10 months ago, I 
probably could have put a more practical application on the end of this. But it's really hard for me to say what that looks like for you. I'm trying to figure out what it looks like for me. But this is our mission. This is what we've been made for. If we own Christ, we owe Christ to our brothers and sisters who maybe are floundering in their sin in isolation and no one knows. How do we check up on them? How do we check in on them? To those around us who are just dying inside and the world's offering nothing more than economic promise. How do we reach out to them with the promise that they're made for more? The hope of the gospel. The band's going to come up now. I'm going to... Um, I'm just going to invite us to, to pray the words of Psalm 139 together, and, and um, which the end of Psalm 139 concludes by saying, Search me, Lord, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Holy Spirit, thank you for the reminder of all that you've done for us. that God, you sent your son to reconcile the world to yourself and you've given us that ministry of reconciliation. You invite us to partner with you. Would you search our hearts and see if there's any sin that we've been settling for other than the life you came to give? Convict us as your church. Would you empower us? Would you bring to mind brothers and sisters that we can encourage? Give us creative ways to do that that look loving to our culture and not acts of civil disobedience, but are also emboldened with the gospel. And Holy Spirit, would you please show us how we can carry Christ out into the culture in the middle of this dark time, this hungry time. Empower us for this ministry of reconciliation. And ultimately, we just turn back and we praise you. Jesus, thank you for coming and reconciling us to the Father. And pray that in the name of your son, Jesus, to you, Father. Amen.